Father, thank you again for the reminders of your glory in the songs that we sing. And we're, our hearts resonate with the truth and we sing in sincerity. And at the same time, we realize how much our lives still need to conform to all of the glories and the wonders of salvation. And so we thank you for your ongoing ministry, Holy Spirit, to convict and to guide and to lead, to instruct, to rebuke and to train and to teach us in the ways of righteousness. Help us to humbly respond to your good providences in our life, even as this passage will help us to look at one aspect of that, that is those providences that bring us sometimes in certain parts of your body into suffering for righteousness, for the name of Christ. And we know that this is one way in which you both deepen our faith, that you prove our faith, and that you glorify your name. And may we be prepared by not waiting for some big event to be faithful, but by seeking to be faithful in all of the moments throughout our lives. And each day as we seek to walk by the Spirit and to put on righteousness and the Lord Jesus Christ. To that end, we ask that you would use our gathering today and now the ministry of your word to spur us on to these good deeds and lives of faithfulness. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen. Uh, before we begin, uh, we're still trying to nail down the exact timing of our uh, announcements. So uh, as you might notice that that was in the bulletin, but we didn't do it. Let me make uh, just a few announcements along the way. One is to reminder for those who are part of the Thursday men's study. It is also in your bulletin that we will... Uh, we were meeting every other week, but we're going to meet every week for the next few weeks at least to try to... Uh, get some momentum. We end up uh, not always covering the amount of ground that uh, is, is intended, but uh, because of good discussion and hopefully things that we're profiting by. But we're going to meet this Thursday as well and cover uh, figures of speech uh, in the Bible as we think about interpretation. And also, as was noted in your bulletin in kind of a long paragraph at the end, you note that there are quite a few things going on around the church. So if you wonder why there's black plastic on the ground outside and no baseboards uh, on our, uh, you know, on the floor, and why there's no book nook in the back, and there's just a big hole there with a funny paint design. Uh, it is just because things are slowly being done, and the same here in the sanctuary with uh, the wires and uh, hanging down and speakers. Uh, all of this stuff is in process of being updated and being attended uh, uh, to. So we thank you for those who have helped so far and those who will be able to help in the future with other projects that we have going on. Uh, so thank you and uh, just be patient as we move along. All right, with that said, open up your Bibles, if you will, to the book of First Peter. The book of First Peter, turning to chapter 4, as we continue looking at verses 12 through 19. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And as you're turning there, I would remind us again, coming into 1 Peter, that God has ordained a variety of ways to test our faith in this world. He mentioned in verse 6 of chapter 1 that there are various trials, there are various difficulties, there are various circumstances that he brings into our life to test us, to mature us, to grow us, ultimately in that context to prove our faith, that it might shine forth as gold and might end and result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he returns in all of his magnificent glory to receive us to himself. He also brings to us this paradoxical Reality that namely by doing good and by being faithful to Christ, it would receive from the world hostility. It's always kind of odd to think that Christians who seek to live truthfully, who seek to live lives of integrity, who seek to love their neighbors of themselves, actually provoke such scorn from a hostile world. But that is how it is because of sin, because of fallenness. That's how it was with Christ. He is the one who has gone before us. And we certainly know that he was without sin. And though he had been without sin, with perfect love to God and perfect love to neighbor, was nonetheless rejected. But that's how God glorifies his name. And as Christ has gone before us, receiving from a world 
in rebellion to God, its hostility for righteousness' sake, so his people who bear his name know that same experience, that same experience of being rejected by the world. And yet it is in that experience that is shared with Christ that we manifest his life in us. Let me read to you from uh, the beginning of a biography by John Piper. It's a, it's a great little series. It's short little uh, accounts of the lives of faithful men. There's about, I think, five or so in the series. It's called the, the Swans Are Not Silent. And one of them, titled Filling Up the Afflictions of Christ, he says this in a helpful way. God has appointed our pain to be part of his powerful display of the glory of Christ. The worth of Jesus in the world shines more brightly in the lives of those who say by their sacrificial lives, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Philippians 3.8. Notes later, God really means for the body of Christ, the church, to experience some of the suffering he experienced so that when we proclaim the cross as the way of life, people will see the marks of the cross in us and feel the love of the cross from us. So it is the faithful suffering of believers throughout the ages that has acted as a testimony for Christ. Our obedience to him has shown his worthiness and shown him to be a treasure. And it is that obedience and that treasuring of Christ in the life of his people, particularly in suffering, that has acted as a witness to the world. A witness to the reality of who he is and what he's done for us. This is a famous statement by Tertullian, a second century church father, who said, a statement you're familiar with, the the oftener we are mowed down by you, and you here speaking of the Romans, the more in number we, that is Christians, grow. The blood of the Christians is seed. We hear that sometimes is the seed of the church. Reflecting on this statement, Piper continues with this note, which is helpful. For almost 300 years, Christianity grew in soil that was wet with the blood of martyrs. In his History of Christian Missions, Stephen Neal mentions that the sufferings of the early Christians mentions the sufferings of the early Christians as one of the six main reasons the church grew so rapidly. Neal says this: because of the bitter, dangerous situation via via the law, Christians were almost bound to meet in secret. Every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. When persecution did break out, martyrdom could be attended by the utmost possible publicity. The Roman public was cruel, but it was not altogether without compassion. And there is no doubt that the attitude of the martyrs, and particularly of the young women who suffered along with the men, made a deep impression. In the earlier records, what we find is calm, dignified, Decorous behavior, cool courage in the face of torment, courtesy towards enemies, and a joyful acceptance of suffering as the way appointed by the Lord to lead to his heavenly kingdom. There are a number of well-authenticated cases of conversion of pagans in the very moment of witnessing the condemnation and death of Christians. There must have been far more who received impressions that in the course of time would turn into a living faith. And so that's how God has decided to bear witness to his name. Jesus himself, speaking of the crucifixion that was coming to him in John chapter 12, said, Lord, glorify your name, speaking of what he was to undergo, at least as the first instance of how his name would be glorified. While we in the Western world experience suffering far less, at least in intensity, The reality is that many of our brethren throughout the history of the church and even today suffer much because of the testimony of Christ. And everybody who desires to live godly in this present age will suffer some. It's just part of naming the name of Christ. It's a part of this side of life or this life, this side of heaven. It's a kind of preparation for it. So in Acts 4... 1422, possibly says that though through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the equation is simple. Christ suffered and his people suffer. Suffering for Christ is according to the will of God. 
which is a statement we'll get to hopefully next week in verse 19 of our passage. Those also who suffer, he says, according to the will of God. It's a part of God's will. But here's the amazing thing that we're struck with when we read Scripture and when we come into 1 Peter. Is that our first response to this suffering is that of misery, that of maybe self-pity, that of a woe is me kind of attitude at times. But Scripture points us in exactly the opposite direction. And Peter even makes the point here for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that when we suffer as Christians and when we suffer for righteousness, when we suffer out of obedience to Christ, that actually should not be a a source of our misery but a source of our joy. Even overwhelming joy. Even incredible joy. And it's a joy that can be ours when our heart is right and our faith is strong. When we understand the realities of the gospel When our lives are yielded completely to the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us. And that's what Peter points us to this morning. Again, four principles of joy in our suffering. Four principles of joy in our suffering. We noted last week that a first principle is that when suffering, we need to think according to reality, present and future. Secondly, and this morning we'll see that we need to lay a hold of our position in Christ... Thirdly, that we glorify God for our salvation from judgment. And fourthly, that we trust God for doing what is good and what is right. Let's read our passage and then we'll look at this. Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. First principle, then, is seen in verses 12 and 13, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. In other words, he calls these believers who are suffering to think according to reality. He calls them back to reality. The unreality is this, is that somehow we can live faithfully in this world as those who follow Christ, the same world that crucified Christ and not so far historically from their own situation and expect things to go better for us than it did for him. He calls us to think according to reality, reality both of the present condition of the world and the future condition that is promised and belongs to and is secured to all believers. The present condition of the world is that it is a world under sin. The present condition of the world is that it is a world directed by the influence of the God of this world, namely Satan. The condition of the world is that there is great animosity and hatred between light and darkness. And therefore we should not be surprised. We should not expect that a world enslaved to sin, blinded and influenced by the God of this world, that walks in spiritual darkness, that hates exposure by the light, that persecuted and hated Christ... We should not expect this world to always be a comfortable place for Christians to live. That simply is not the present reality of our state and in the program of God. However, it is also reality, he tells us, again in verse 13, to keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. It's also reality that though there is suffering in the present world, there is glory unimaginable at the return of Christ that we will share in with him. It is his glory that we participate in as his, the fruit of his suffering, the fruit of his redemption as his own inheritance. It's a reality that we have a future glory that far outweighs any present suffering. 
It's the reality of our future in Christ that enables Peter to command us in the midst of our suffering to rejoice. And it is a command, something that we are to obey. In other words, to suffer for the name of Christ, to suffer because of our obedience to Christ, and not be willing to rejoice and to seek to rejoice would be then disobedience. It would be sin. It is the reality then of our future in Christ that should enable us to transcend the suffering and find joy in the purposes of God. And the reason is not because the, joy, the suffering itself is joyful, but because the suffering proves our faith and the reality of our salvation and because it will be rewarded with unspeakable joy at his return. That's the source of it. It's the reality that we belong to Christ, our glorious God and Savior, that we can have joy. So the first principle then is to think according to reality. The reality of our present condition and the hostility that we uh, endure because of living in a fallen world. But also the reality of our future that God has provided for us a glorious salvation in Christ. Secondly, then we are to lay hold of our position in Christ. This is verses 14 through 16. So he says in verse 14, Then if you are reviled for the name of Christ... You're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, just as a first note here, some of you have the King James Version, particularly uh, 1611. It's going to have an extended, uh, some extended statement here that says in the Old English, on their part, at the end of the spirit of God rests on you, then it will say on their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. If you have any other Bible, modern version, NIV, ESV, New American Standard, or so on, it's not going to have that. It's going to stop right at the God of rest, uh, the Spirit of God rest on you. And that's because it's not in the best manuscripts and it's not uh, probably a part of the original text. I only say that in case you read something. If somebody has a King James Version and you go, why isn't he talking about that part? Uh, it's because it was probably not a part of Peter's original letter. That being said, this principle laid down of laying hold of our position in Christ is an incredible statement. And it has this at its heart. In direct and overwhelming contrast to the shame heaped upon believers for their identity of Christ, this identity for Christians is our highest joy and greatest privilege and honor. The reality of what is is exactly the opposite of the way the unbelieving world sees it. And that's why we can suffer with joy. That's why they can heap shame. And in their heaping shame, we receive honor. In their heaping abuse to cause pain, we can have joy. In their hatred of what we long for and what we represent as Christians, there is an affirmation of what is right and what is true and what is good. And the reality of the presence of God in this world. In other words, everything is upside down. It's tipsy-turvy according to the reality of the world. The way things really are. And so he says, if we understand that, then when you are reviled or maligned or spoken against is the idea. For the name of Christ, he says, you are blessed. Carries the idea of happiness Grounded in the favorable situation of belonging to and possessing God's favor. Being partakers of his grace. That's the idea of it. It's certainly not a happiness from our circumstances. It's certainly not a happiness from loss. It's certainly not a happiness because we like being insulted. We like being, made, uh, being humiliated. We like being rejected. We like being outcast. There's certainly no joy in that. There's pain, and it's a real pain. There's a real shame. There's a real endurance of what is unpleasant. But the kind of joy and the blessedness that he speaks of is something that runs far deeper than that which is controlled by our circumstances. It is the joy that in that kind of suffering for Christ, we belong to him. That we belong to him. And if we understand the wonder then of that kind of salvation, of belonging to Christ, then it is natural that there would be joy in our suffering. This reflects, of course, Jesus' words. You're probably thinking of them. In Matthew 5, speaking in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Why are they blessed? Because they are part of the kingdom of God. 
Why should you count yourself blessed and not accursed when you're suffering? Because it means that you are a part of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's hard, isn't it? I mean, if you're in the workplace and you know people speak behind your back, you know that you lose a promotion or you're not included in the cool clubs or whatever because of your testimony of Christ, that they malign you, that they misjudge your motives and your intentions, that they speak against you falsely because you are a Christian. He says, in this you are to consider yourself blessed, not accursed, not forsaken, not forgotten, but blessed, blessed of God, blessed because it affirms that he has counted you as his own. He says in verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It is to say then we can count ourselves blessed in the same way because it means that we, even though persecuted and hear this, are living under the gracious conditions of God's sovereignty and covenant love for us. Even in suffering, we are living under the gracious conditions of God's sovereignty, his sovereign love for us as his children. And in what seems to be a paradoxical way, that is actually a source of our joy because it affirms we belong to him. And in contrast to what we might hear from certain parts of Christianity who seem to try so hard to be spoken well of, Jesus warns that woe to you when all men speak well of you. It means you're probably compromising somewhere in your obedience to Christ. So we are to consider ourselves blessed, Peter says, when we suffer anything for the name of Christ. Because of our identity with him. Our identity with him. But then he points to something even more wonderful and glorious or that attends that. And that is this, that our position is secured and upheld by the Spirit. You are blessed because, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The Spirit of the glory and the glory and of God rests upon you. Now literally here it says It depends on how you take this. The glory and the spirit of God rest on you. As if these were speaking about two different things. The glory of God rests on you and the spirit of God rests on you. And that is a possible way to translate the statement here. If you take it in that way that these are two separate things and it would refer to a kind of Shekinah glory we share in by the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives. The glory of Christ's own life manifested in us. Remember to speak of the glory of God, we have looked at this, is to say this outward visible glory or manifestation of the truths of God. So God is glorified in us when he is put on display by his trustworthiness, by him considering to be our treasure, by our obedience to him. So there is a way that we could take it that way. It would, it would match up with Paul's own words in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where there he says, Therefore, I will gladly boast in my weakness in order that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And it would be in that light then that God is glorified because it is his power that is evident within me. It is his ministry through the spirit of God that is evident within me when my weakness is exposed and his strength is put on display. It's also possible to take this as a kind of figure of speech. Those who are coming on Thursday night uh, will know this as a hendeidas, in which two, two separate terms here are being used to describe the single idea. So it, it may be too that he's saying, because the glorious spirit rests on you. The glorious spirit abides on you, and particularly in your suffering. And really, in any way, it doesn't make a huge practical difference in terms of the encouragement because God is glorified in our faithfulness to him because our ability to be faithful to him is because of the ministry of the spirit in us but here's how it connects with the position in Christ 
and why we titled this point, The Position of Christ. Because the great glory and wonder and promise and majesty and gift of the new covenant for believers is an intimate indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who gives us life, the Holy Spirit who seals our redemption, the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ, the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live for Christ, the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us, the Holy Spirit who comforts us. The Holy Spirit is the great promise, the great gift that we, that Christ has received and has poured out to us. The glory of the promise received and given to the church by the risen Christ is a new and an intimate union with Christ. It is the very same spirit that indwelled Christ and upheld him. It is the very same spirit that is in his people, his body, upholding them as well in faithfulness. Paul says in Romans 8, 9, If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. It is the spirit of Christ. The spirit that revealed the Father in Christ. The spirit that through his ministry revealed Christ in his humanity to be the Son of God. The spirit that accomplishes and applies the fruit of Christ's atoning death and the eternal purposes of God. It means then to have the spirit is to be identified with Christ. It's the same spirit that visibly remained on Christ at his baptism, the beginning of his public ministry. The same spirit who Christ promised when he said, I will go away, but there is one I will send. He will come. I will not leave you as orphans. This one is the one who is the helper. For the spirit who sustained and empowered Christ on earth is the same spirit who indwells us and is the dynamic power and presence of God among us who are his people. Who are his people. It is a dynamic, it is a living, it is a vibrant ministry of the Holy Spirit in his people that upholds us in persecution. In fact, Peter is almost certainly reflecting back on Isaiah chapter 11 that anticipates the Messiah in these wonderful words. He says, you can just listen. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. One in promise of the, to David, of the Messiah who would come. And what will mark him? It says in verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What marked the life of Christ As the Son incarnate, it was that he had the Spirit without measure, John said. And so to blaspheme him was to blaspheme the Spirit of God who was manifesting the glory of God through him and empowering him as the Son incarnated in flesh to fulfill his ministry. And he's saying that same Spirit then dwells in you, dwells with you. He dwells with you. It is to say that we are a part of that promise that Jesus said to his disciples. Let me just remind you of a couple of these things. In verse 4 of of chapter 1 of Acts, Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. The Father's promise, Jesus communicated it, and this is it. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. At the preaching of the gospel after the coming of the Spirit, Peter says in verse 33 of chapter 2, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. That is the wonder and the glory and the affirmation and the power of the new covenant. This ministry of the Spirit. And Peter is saying when you are suffering, you are blessed when you are suffering for the name of Christ. Why? Because you are participating in what Christ himself 
endured. You are identifying your union with him. And you know the special, unique ministry of the Spirit who upholds you in that suffering and glorifies the name of Christ through you. It's wonderful. It's magnificent. We are not suffering alone. There's a way, which that's the presence of Christ through the Spirit is reflected in Paul's word. He says in 2 Timothy, at one point of his persecution, all have abandoned me, he said, but Christ stood with me. Christ stood with me. He was strengthened. He was emboldened. He was comforted in his suffering because of the ministry of Christ through the Spirit. And that's certainly not new. Peter has emphasized the ministry of the Spirit throughout. He says in verse 2 of chapter 1 that we have received the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That sanctifying work of the Spirit who has set us apart to Christ in our position. That's why we're called saints. That sanctifying, ongoing work of the Spirit that is continually using the providences of God and the truth of God and our response to that to sanctify us and mold us more and more into the image of Christ. That sanctifying work of the Spirit that is guaranteed that our position in Christ will know its full fruition at the end when we are conformed fully to His image, ultimately in the resurrection. He's saying the Spirit has from beginning, middle, and end is that sanctifying spirit who upholds you and who keeps you and who protects you by the power of God through faith. It is the same spirit of Christ. This footnote here also marking Christ as the eternal Son of God in flesh. He says in verse 11, it was the spirit of Christ within the prophets of old that indicated the sufferings of Christ and the glories of the Father. It was that same spirit who empowers the preaching of the gospel. In verse 12, those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is the Holy Spirit who empowered that prophetic word and who moved the prophets as the human instruments of God to record for us in Holy Scripture all of God intends for us to know and to lay hold of. The Spirit of God is active. And I want to make a note here, because this is the glory of it. The Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. And when we say third member, we simply are communicating these kind of ideas. Is that within the way the persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, relate to one another... It is the Father who ordains and rules. It is the Spirit who is the agent of God to speak and to act. And the, or the Son and the Holy Spirit who brings to fruition all the purposes of God. The power of God. We think of that in creation. It was the Father who willed creation. The Son who spoke creation. The Spirit who brought about creation by his power. And so here he is. He's not merely a force. He's not merely a vague sense of power. He is the personal presence of God within his people. Within you. Within me. Within us gathered here together this morning and every Christian everywhere. He is that dynamic power in us. And that power and that presence of God, what Peter is saying here, is manifesting our belonging to this kingdom and our belonging to Christ when we endure suffering for the name of Christ. God's presence is manifest in us. Again, as a divine person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit animates, empowers, leads, comforts, guides, upholds, convicts, compels us to righteousness, faithfulness, and joyful courage in glorifying Christ. But Peter is careful here. He speaks with a kind of realism. Uh, in other words, this is true, but he knows the weakness still, even of those who name the name of Christ, and the tendency to sin, and his tendency to think wrong about this. So he says in verse 15, he says that our suffering must truly be for the sake of Christ. He says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. In other words, make sure you're suffering for righteousness, not for unrighteousness. 
The suffering he assumes is that suffering that is a response because of our obedience to Christ, our obedience to Christ. Which again, he opened the letter with, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, he says, to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. So the assumption here is is that the suffering is for righteousness, not for unrighteousness. He says in verse 14 of chapter 3, Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. If you suffer for the sake of righteousness. And this is really a helpful note for us. Obviously for them. There are too many times that a Christian can have a chip on their shoulder or a martyr complex that sees all suffering that comes to them as a Christian as some vindication of their faith and obedience. However, there are times when Christians can suffer simply because we are rude, insensitive, obnoxious, breaking laws sometimes as some sort of... And then when we receive the consequence of that, want to take on ourselves some badge of martyrdom... When we suffer because we sin or we act foolishly, we are to take no rest that we're glorifying God and to take no sort of false honor in saying that our suffering is actually because we are Christians. No, you're actually suffering because you acted foolishly or because you broke a law, because you did something you shouldn't have done. And that apparently was something that was going on in the thinking. He said the same thing. If you remember back in verse 20 of chapter 2, he says, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? If there's consequences for your own disobedience, but you patiently endure those consequences, basically he says, big whoop-de-doo, you should. You're receiving what you should receive. But the glory of God, the glory of belonging to Christ, the glory of the Spirit's ministry within us is manifest when we do what is right, when we do what is good, when we do what is obedient to Him, and then we suffer. Then we suffer. Then it has an honor to it. Then it has a glory. Now, it's not likely, it's, you can't really be dogmatic, but it's not likely that these Christians were actually guilty of these crimes. It's possible at times More likely, Peter is using these extremes of murder and thievery and evildoer or troublesome meddler or busybody. You could translate it either way. That he's using those as extremes to make the point that, look, don't let it be because of sin. If you're going to suffer, suffer because of your obedience, not your disobedience. And again, the ultimate expression of that is Christ. The ultimate act of his obedience was in his ultimate suffering at the cross. He submitted his will completely to the Father. And the ultimate act of his obedience was giving himself up to the ultimate endurance of suffering for our sin. Let it be because of obedience that you suffer, not because of disobedience. So Peter squashes that kind of thinking. Oh, there are so many examples you could say there, but let me move on to this last point. I want to finish it. He says then that we... Lay hold of our position in Christ. Understanding that can bring us joy, a sense of blessedness because of how we're identified with Christ, because of a ministry, the new covenant ministry, particularly of the Holy Spirit within us, that if we suffer, let's make sure that we're suffering for righteousness' sake, not for disobedience. But when we do lay hold of these realities, we have a kind of holy boldness in the midst of suffering. Verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in this name. He's not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in this name. Interestingly, the idea or the identity of believers as Christians first came about. You may be familiar in Acts 11.26. It says believers were first called Christians there in Antioch, or the disciples were first called Christians there in Antioch. And, and interestingly, again, this is only used three times, three different places is the label of Christian used for believers, and in each time it is the title that those outside of the church used for believers. It wasn't a means of self-identity, at least not at first. Generally, believers 
prefer terms like disciple, followers of Christ. Some of probably the Jewish believers refer to themselves as followers of the way. Those or servants of Christ. Those kind of things. But the name given to them to believers outside were those of Christians. And it basically just meant Christ followers. And it wasn't necessarily a derogatory term. As a matter of fact, the the connection here is very similar to what those who followed Herod were called Herodians. Those who followed Christ were called Christians. It's how they identified them. But what is significant about it is this, is that the life of these believers was so identified with the person of Christ that that's how they were known to the world. Those are the people who follow Christ. And because of that, it actually became, as early as the second century, an identity marker adopted by true believers. Polycarp, we've mentioned him in the past, who was a disciple of John, an early Christian father and martyr, famously declared before his accusers who were trying to call him to recant and to escape the persecution, his martyrdom, simply made this statement. He said other things, but he said climactically this, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. And it's because of that reason that he would not swear. It is recorded for us by the genius of Caesar. So he took the name of Christian and he wore it proudly. And he wore it boldly and he declared his identity to Christ. Which ultimately was the means of his being led to death. He was not ashamed to name the name of Christ. And to be called a Christian even unto death. And neither should we be. He says, if you suffer as a Christian, you are not to be ashamed. The idea behind the term is this, to feel shame or disgrace because of having done something wrong or something beneath one's dignity or social status. He uses the verb here, but in the noun, he uses it in several ways that connect with the ways that we're tempted to be ashamed. He uses it, you'll remember, in the instance in Luke 14 when someone who sits at a higher place is asked to go to a lower place and he experiences disgrace or shame before all are there. His social status is made lower. It's the kind of shame that causes people to hide sin. As in 2 Corinthians 4.2, Paul says he doesn't have that. He says he doesn't have something hidden because of shame. The false teachers do, but not him. It's the kind of shame that the Lord himself felt in Hebrews 12 too, when he endured the cross. He felt shame. He was humiliated. Part of his suffering was to feel the full brunt and the full weight of it. And these descriptions fit the way then that we as Christians can often be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel, of being identified with Christ. Why? Well, at the heart of it is because we do not want to be thought foolish or made lower in the eyes of others. In other words, it's a form of pride. It's a form of pride. It's a sense of thinking too highly of ourselves and too little of Christ. Too little of God, whose glory he has bound to the name of Christ. And so it's saying then, in essence, if we are ashamed, we are ashamed of that very reality to which God has attached his own glory. And he says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. It's the kind of shame that we want to avoid at the claims of the gospel who will think it only foolish or ridicule us. It's the shame of the university professor who holds to the authority and the truthfulness and the sufficiency of scripture who's ridiculed by his colleagues, who's not given tenure in his job, or anyone at a workplace who's rejected a promotion, who is kept on the outside as an outcast. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Imagine how ridiculous the message of Christ crucified, risen, and returning was to the ears of the first century Jews and Gentiles. We have nearly 2,000 years of church history to stand on. Can you imagine that message going out and saying to these Jews, these Gentile nations what that message would have sounded like to their ears? Oh, by the way, this Jewish rabbi who went around doing miracles and claimed to be God himself, the creator of the world, oh, but by the way, was crucified in the most ignoble and shameful and painful way on a Roman cross as a criminal rejected by his own nation who he came in fulfillment of their promises. By the way, he was resurrected from the dead. He is God, and if you don't believe in him, you will be eternally punished. 
Can you imagine how ridiculous that would sound? And yet that was the message boldly proclaimed through which God formed the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the shame we sometimes feel when we have to own every part of the Bible. Christians who sometimes want to make excuses for God and get him off the hook of why bad things happen to good people, you'll hear. Of why God commanded whole peoples to be wiped out as an act of judgment, the Amalekites. We sometimes want to hide from those parts of the Bible. We're ashamed by them. Maybe ashamed sometimes by the reality of eternal punishment for those who refuse to believe. The full reality of sin. Of proclaiming that God is sovereign over evil. Of proclaiming that he is the only way and the truth and the life that Christ is. That he was raised from the dead. We try to soften those truths sometimes because of shame. It happens. It happens to them. It happens to us. He says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. There was a famous inscription in the early centuries of the church. And it showed a a stick figure kind of bowing before a figure on the cross. You've heard of this before maybe. And on the cross it was a figure of a man and the head of a donkey. And it says, Alexa Monis worships his God. That's how they were viewed. And they thought to shame them. But Peter tells us, by inspiration of the Spirit, don't be ashamed. But instead, instead glorify God in this name. Glorify God in this name. And for the Christian thinking rightly, and for the one who truly meditates and lays hold of the glory of God and truth in Christ, not only is there no shame, there is glory. And how do we glorify him? By being confidently faithful to him in spite of the persecution, of gladly owning Christ in the midst of those who try to heap shame, of speaking the truth even though we are maligned for it without slipping into defensiveness, anger, or fear, but with a bold and a confident and a humble trust in him. We see examples of that throughout church histories, throughout scripture. You'll remember the disciples after they were, or the apostles were persecuted, they praised God in Acts chapter 5 because they were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Paul and Silas were stretched out in a prison, in a jail, and they sang praises to God. One says, Armando Baladeras, for 22 years, a prisoner of Castro's regime in Cuba, tells of how he came to a living trust in Christ. Those cries of the executed patriots, long live Christ the King, down with communism, had awakened me to a new life, he said. The cries became such a potent and stirring symbol that by 1963, the men condemned to death were gagged before being carried down to be shot. The jailers feared those shouts. There was power in their confidence in their testimony of Christ. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's a different term, but it's synonymous. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God unto salvation. Paul said he was not ashamed of the witness of Christ in 2 Timothy 1.8. It's not being ashamed. But I want to wrap that point up with this. Not only should we not be ashamed, but glorify God in the name. What should really shock us is this. That God owns us. That God owns us. If anybody should be ashamed, God should be ashamed for us as his people. Am I making that up? Listen to Hebrews 2.11. For God who both... For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he, Christ, is not ashamed to call them brethren... Imagine if we were in the reverse position. Would we want to claim as our own those who so poorly represent and reflect my glory? Who are so weak and stumbling? But Christ isn't ashamed. God isn't ashamed either. Hebrews eleven sixteen. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Those who... We're faithful to the end and to death. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. 
If Christ, the incarnate God, creator, redeemer, resurrected Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who's returning to judge the living and the dead and establish his kingdom on earth, is not ashamed to own us a weak and stumbling and failing people, how would we ever be ashamed to own him in this world? Him who is infinite, majestic, and glorious. How should we be ashamed to own him whom the Father himself is not ashamed to own and attach his name and his own glory to? How could we be ashamed when God isn't ashamed? And matter of fact, he says, this is how I manifest my glory. Far from shame then, we should name, we should glory in the name of Christ. Is the name of Christ that we, for, for the name of Christ, we gladly bear the reproaches of darkness. It's for the love of Christ and of men that we will by his grace speak the whole counsel of God and the truth of the gospel, the resurrection, the kingdom, and his return. And as God has owned Christ and Christ has owned us as his own, and as the Spirit was sent to glorify Christ in us, may we in our confidence delight in this same glory. Let me just read the words of the song and then we're going to close and uh, we want to recognize the new members. You know this song. I won't sing it. You can be thankful. But you can sing it in your head. It always sounds much better in our head than it does, you know, or in the shower than it does in reality. But here, here is the words. I will glory in my Redeemer whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death, my only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. I will glory in my Redeemer, my life he bought, my love he owns. I have no longings for another. I am satisfied in him alone. And I will glory in my Redeemer, his faithfulness, my standing place. Though foes are mighty and rush upon me, my feet are firm, held by his grace. I will glory in my Redeemer who carries me on eagle's wings. He crowns my life with loving kindness. His triumph song I'll sing. And I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. And when he calls me, it will be paradise, his face forever to behold. Let's pray. Our God, help us to own these truths as ours ours. May they be the truth that deeply resonates within our soul. Remove from us everything that clouds our judgment and our clear sight of Christ. And Holy Spirit, take these truths and the wonders of all the promises that are ours in Christ and fill our hearts with the wonder of them. Help us to see all of the faded glories of this world in light of that unending and majestic and eternal glory of Christ and to live lives longing to be with you and longing to present to you lives that are holy, obedient, trusting in you. And Father, if there are any here this morning who don't know you, who have not yet come to taste this glory, taste your kindness in Christ. Our prayer is that today would be the day that you would show them mercy. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, John, we're actually going to